Hi, you're listening to The Art of Inquiry. I'm your host, James Treewick, and today we're sitting down with Diff Crowther to continue the, the conversation that we started last week. We're going to be looking at Shakespeare, humoralism, and the sin of Acedia as portrayed in Timon of Athens, King Lear, and Macbeth. I hope you enjoy. Before we get into the episode, I just wanted to let you also know that our website is live. You will be able to find the link in the show notes or on any of the posts that this is shared on. Go through, check it out. There's a bunch of really cool merch that I think some of you will really enjoy. So thanks. Talk more at the end. Great. Well, we are back for episode two of season two, and we are returning to the topic discussed in episode one with uh, Diff Crowther. We're going to be talking about humoralism and Shakespeare and looking at how uh, the humours and the sin of Acedia interplay with three of Shakespeare's tragedies, Macbeth, Timon of Athens and King Lear. Well, thanks for being back, Diff. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. It's always good to talk Shakespeare. Well, let's just pick up where we left off last week. I think uh, we could do a quick kind of summary of the what was discussed in kind of like a one to two sentence summary. If you sure. haven't listened to the last episode, probably worth doing, but just as a quick refresher anyway. Yeah. So the humors really are an ancient way of understanding uh, biology and medicine. Uh, the belief that there are four different humors, uh, liquids coursing through the body. And that if you have too much or not enough of them, or they're imbalanced, uh, then you can get sick as a result of that. So that's phlegm, yellow bile, black bile, and blood. And that's where we get our idea of different personality types. Now you still hear people talk about being phlegmatic or being melancholy. We talked a little bit as well about the fact that in early modern times in particular, religion kind of came in and got involved in that. And they started to see that demonic interference could take place with those humors. So when a person was melancholic, it could be a result of the way that they lived, of decisions that they made with what they ate, you know, how they went about their life. But it also could be a result of demons coming and getting involved in them and causing an overabundance of black bile, for example. And so their melancholy is a result not only of uh, their kind of genetic predisposition, not only a result of the way that they're living, but also possibly a result of demonic oppression. And, and then what we did, um, you know, this discussion of the humors led us to a discussion of worldview and kind of the materialist worldview as opposed to a more medieval or ancient worldview where things were overlapping, complex, interconnected. Mm. Uh, and we, we got onto the discussion of sin. And I think we kind of ended the, the discussion by saying that, you know, sin is probably one of the more, um, the modern representation of this kind of interconnectedness of things, because it's, it's a physical action that has connections to the mind and to the spirit as well. Mm. Um, but what we were going to, what we left with is that we we're going to get into some Shakespeare and you gave us a little bit of a hint of the, the plays and how, it, how it happens in it. But this episode, we're just going to dive a bit deeper in, in some of them and see, see where it takes us. Mm, so sure. which is the play we're starting with? I thought we should start with King Lear. Uh, Leah is a pretty good indication of, uh, because it's kind of hidden what the sin is, but uh, I believe that there is a sin, a central sin at work in Leah. <clears throat> and Leah uh, is, is committing a sin that is uh, not obvious at first, but it is the, it, the, uh, it is the moment that kickstarts all of the rest of the action. So and what's his sin? Uh, well, I, I would argue that his sin is a cedia. So right at the start of the play, uh, what what Lear actually does is he gets everyone together, gets his family together, and he decides to cut up the kingdom and divide the kingdom in thirds. 
And a lot of people kind of ask the question, well, why is he doing this? And there are so many different ways of thinking about Shakespeare plays. You know, so a fairly common way to think about this is that this play was written for King James and James had just come in after Elizabeth had finished up. James obviously came from the north, from Scotland. And so he was talking about, you know, the United Kingdom. So this question of where are the boundary maps on the kingdom was very prevalent at the time of King Lear. So... You know, there are as many different theories about a Shakespeare play as there are people who have thought about it, basically. Uh, but another way of thinking about it is, well, asking why did he want to cut it up? And he actually tells us, he actually tells us why he wants to cut it up. Uh, he says that his intent, and he actually calls it, interestingly enough, his dark intent. So he kind of knows that there's something wrong with what he's doing. But he says that his intent is to shake all cares and business from his age conferring them on younger strengths while he unburdened crawls towards death so you can kind of see that he is trying to get rid of to reject the responsibilities that he has and that's a fairly central uh way of thinking about the sin of acedia it's rejecting the good that's being given to you it's rejecting the purpose and the limitations and the um the responsibility that god has given you as a king it's been chosen by god he has the responsibility to look after the kingdom. And so there is, this is, this is coming from a dark place. It's a bad idea to cut it up. And it is the cutting up of the kingdom and the way that he goes about it that results ultimately actually in the kingdom being lost. Like, spoiler alert, France comes over and takes over, basically. There's a big war at the end of King Lear. Uh, and so he cuts it up and it, it, it kind of starts this process of everything starting to unravel and fall apart, including his relationship with his daughters, who are the people that he was planning on giving parts of his kingdom to. Mm, mm. So that, that, that's the, uh, yeah, it, it's the start of the play and it's the, the context for all the events that then happen. But really all the events that then happen is not anything anywhere near so grand as boundaries breaking apart and and civil uh, unrest. It's It's far more or at least you could read some of it as far more the personal journey of King Lear now, now that he has rejected these responsibilities and, and thrown them onto others uh, and the way in which he's done that all coming back to affect him. So I believe that this is, this is the way that you're going to take the discussion to kind of look, focus in on King Lear's character itself and, and the way that his humours and his sins of play, play out on, yeah, onto his yeah. state. I mean, it- like much of Shakespeare, it is as it is as much a big grand epic as it is a a small slice of life, a family drama. You know, so there are there are countries at stake, but there's also the relationship between an old man and his kids, and importantly, his daughters' uh, husbands, who all kind of get in on the act. And there's side plots, as there often is in Shakespeare as well. And the side plot tells us a little bit. You know, it, it illuminates what's going on in the central plot. So the side plot is with a guy called Gloucester, and then you've got his sons, Edmund and Edgar, and the things that are going on there. Uh, But if we focus in on Lear, uh, one of the things that uh, King Lear, the story, the the play is really about, is the question of sight. So uh, people go blind in Lear, people talk about sight all the time. There's actually over 50 uses in the play of the word eye itself. There's around 26 of the word look, 19 of seek, and 11 of sight. So it is a central idea throughout this play, the ability to see things properly. And all throughout, there are people saying, look there, and then not seeing things accurately, not seeing the truth, not seeing reality for what it is. Right at the end of the play, uh, almost his last words, 
uh, that he he says, my eyes are not of the best. And interestingly enough, it's actually probably when he is seeing most clearly right at the end when he's really old and he feels like he's not seeing properly. But finally, he is actually seeing stuff. His final words, he's holding so many spoilers in this, James. I hope that's okay. He's that's holding fine. the dead body of Cordelia. Uh, and his final words are, look there, look there. And then he dies. And there's a lot of conjecture about what he dies of, but many people would say he dies of a broken heart, which was considered something that you could actually die from uh, in the early modern period. And again, that's connected to a humoral way of understanding the body. So you can actually have the, the humours that are uh, coursing through your body can become so imbalanced that you can die from it. And a broken heart, so losing his daughter, the only daughter that actually ended up really loving him properly, uh, is the reason that he dies of this broken heart. So we've got this question of sight going on, and it's an interesting way of thinking about Leah, because there is a, a number of different people who have spoken about the question of the demonic and whether there's any demonic interference or interaction within uh, King Lear. One of the reasons for that question is because he actually talks about demons. He actually mentions specific names of demons, which had been uh, referenced in King James's book of demonology. He talks about Moho and Madu and uh, uh, let me see if I, a flippity gibbet is one of them mm. as well. So if you've ever called, you know, if you're, if you've called someone flippity gibbet before or been called flippity gibbet, it's actually the name of a demon from the early modern period. Because of that though, some people question, are there any demons in, in Lear? And Stephen Greenblatt, who's a pretty famous, uh, Shakespearean uh, historian, uh, says that no, there are no demons in Lear. This is just evil people doing evil things to each other. But I do think that there's a possibility to find more potential for demonic interference in Leah. And I think that it comes through this question of sight. So if we believe that Leah is suffering from a humoral imbalance, then it's worthwhile having a look at, well, what are some of the things that uh, people thought possible as a result of humoral imbalances? And there's a bunch of cool books written around the time that talk about humoral imbalance. One of them is from a guy called Timothy Bright. And this is what he says. He says, uh, for melancholic people, for people suffering from melancholy, the instrument of discretion is depraved by their melancholic spirits and a darkness and clouds of melancholy vapours rising from the puddle of the spleen obscures the clearness which our spirits are endued with. And this causes fantastical apparitions and forges disguised shapes and counterfeit goblins. I, I guess it's probably uh, important to realign this distinction of sight and seeing with uh the the complexities of physical and spiritual and and uh mental kind of aspects and so you know you were talking about earlier how the final moments is is when he cannot really see he's he's almost blind mm. uh but that's when he sees most clearly and so it's mm. kind of yeah talking about that that distinction again about i just want to make sure people got that and understood that you know that that this transformation of sight is happening almost uh you're really able to see the different elements and even though it's it's hard because we distinguish them in the way we're talking about them right we're saying spiritual physical mental not that they're actually distinguished like that but you can kind of see the way they're being affected differently changing throughout the play so at the beginning he can see clearly with his eyes yes but he cannot see clearly in the way that he is actually understanding what's happening or maybe his role in things it presents a great distinction. It's, it presents a great way of thinking about the question of, well, what really is reality? 
And what do we mean when we say that we can see? So that the first test that he gives his daughters to determine how much of the kingdom they should be given is uh, to talk about how much they love him. He wants these big, grand expressions of love in front of the court. And the first two go for it. They just go out there and they really lay it on thick, right? And he thinks it's great. He's like, oh, this is wonderful. And then Cordelia, who he actually loves the most, refuses. She says nothing. She actually refuses to say anything. Um, and then, you know, King Lear you know, says nothing comes of nothing. And there's a whole other way of thinking about the play, which is this question of like, you know, what do we mean when we say this word? Nothing. Uh, but the point is that he thinks he's seeing clearly, but he's not seeing reality. He's seeing a, he's almost in the cave, Plato's cave, seeing images on the wall, but not seeing reality properly. The side plot with Gloucester is really important for this because Gloucester gets his eyes plucked out. Mm. Um, the, the Leah's daughters at one point get sick of him hanging around and they pull his eyes, eyes out. They say the famous expression out vile jelly as they pull his eyes out. And then he wanders around blind. But he, being physically blind, sees reality far clearer than Leah. So there's, a, there's, there's moments where you can hear Gloucester speaking and actually understanding the world around him so much better. So he's got this true sight, even though he doesn't have physical sight. Leah has physical sight, but doesn't see clearly at all until the end of the play. Mm, I, yeah, that's a good way of um, the highlighting it as well as, yeah, in Gloucester. And so I guess... This all ties back now to the way that King Lear's journey and the way that the humors start working with him and in him and demons and they the journey that he goes through. So let's kind of look at that a little bit more closely. We've got we've got a few more minutes to talk about King Lear. Mm. If you want to jump in on his yeah, the way his he progresses. Like how does his character actually progress throughout the the play in this kind of humoral way? Yeah, I mean a lot of people would say that he um goes mad. And there's a moment, there's this kind of pivotal moment that people would have seen where it's kind of Leah naked on the on the heath out in the storm raging. And it's the it's the it's the high point of his madness. Um, but then some people have pointed out that actually he already starts, he starts the play already kind of in a in a in a place of humoral distemper. He's already in a in a bad way at the start of it. Um, one of the things, so again, looking at kind of older books, treatises on uh, the humours, there are explanations of the kinds of things that humoral distemper does. In particular, Thomas Wright wrote a wonderful book called Passions of the Mind in General, and he lists four properties that are consequent to inordinate passions. It's really interesting to hear what he says. These are the things that will take place in a person and for a person. These are the kind of symptoms of having inordinate passions, which is another way of saying kind of your, your humours are out of whack. Blindness of understanding, perversion of will, alteration of the humours and by them maladies and diseases and troublesomeness or disquietness of the soul. And I, I remember the first time I read that, I'm like, that is just like a roll call of what happens to King Lear. It's like Shakespeare read that and then wrote King Lear that. Mm. Blindness of understanding, straight up. Perversion of his will. Everything he wants to have happen doesn't happen. He and, and it's actually him. He does it to himself. He gets in his own way all the time. He certainly gets sick due to an alteration of the humours. And then he has a, a disquietness and a troublesomeness of the soul when he basically goes insane. And so we have these, these moments uh, where he actually thinks that he sees demons. So this little part that I read before, which is by uh, Thomas uh, Timothy Bright, saying 
that what happens is that you get fantastical apparitions, counterfeit goblins. Really important to understand that this is written uh, at, at, at the time in the early modern period where there's quite a bit of to and fro between Protestantism and Catholicism. You've got a lot of people who are actually Catholics, but these days they had to be Protestant because of you know the, the, the monarchy, so it's mm-hmm. got to be Protestant now. Um, but really what you end up with is a whole bunch of people who are Protestant in name but Catholic in action because they, it's, it takes a while. Like how do you just give up everything that you believe about Catholicism? One of the major distinctions is that Protestants basically did not believe that the demons were kicking around doing stuff, interacting with people, possessing people, but the Catholics did. And so Timothy Bright is writing as a Protestant and saying that these are fantastical apparitions. So in other words, the vapours in your mind make you see things that aren't there. But Levinus, Lemnius, who I talked about last week, would say that, how do you know they're not there? These could very well be real demons because real demons do interact with your humours. They actually inhabit your humours. And so, you know, they, they get into your, into your spleen, they get into your black bile, and then that goes up and clouds your mind. And so when you think you're seeing counterfeit goblins, they very well could be real goblins. So, and so this is what's happening to Leah in this is this journey. Or you're saying it can be viewed as that there is actually demonic work at yeah. place. When you go through the play and you look for uh, the potential for demonic interaction with humoralism, it's rife. It's all through it. And in fact, he refers to his daughters as demons at certain times. And rather than seeing this as just symbolic or just metaphor, I certainly think it works on that level that's the genius of shakespeare he works on 50 levels at once it's just thick with meaning and none of those meanings contradict each other they just build a larger picture they build it you know just like the gloucester side plot it builds a larger picture of of what he's saying and so how and so, does this how does this tie back to the the notion of acedia that we started with and sin as opposed to you know because sin is a, a personal thing whereas demons some could say it's an external force so let's sure. kind of reconcile these Sure. Yeah. Well, the the short answer would be that demons need permission, you know, so a person who is not complicit in a sin can't be affected and afflicted by a demon. Demons uh, operate in that space of they, they get permission, they get licensed to do stuff based upon our, our human actions. So the early modern, this is again, coming back to that early modern confluence of different ways of understanding uh, what we do. Yes, we're free. We're free to make decisions. Those decisions, though, have consequences biologically and have consequences spiritually. So when we sin, chances are it's going to affect us biologically and our humours. Chances are it's going to allow the demons to come in and get involved with us as well. So you've always got these three things working together. You've got your biology, you've got your free will, and then you've got spiritual forces. And that's the complexity of what's happening in King Lear. I guess to kind of capstone this little look into Lear and we're looking at his sight, um talk to us a little bit more about those final moments of Leah and and if there's you know if it's all come to a pinnacle here what's really happening mm, it's pretty interesting because there is actually a moment when Leah goes pretty nuts and then he's in a tent and he's getting looked after by a doctor and the doctor there's two different versions of Leah that are published actually and in one of them the doctor talks about um applying medicine which is actually referenced in some of the medical treatises that are used uh, throughout, uh, in, you know, the early modern period, talking about how to treat different humoral distempers. And one of them actually is tears. It's crying. So it's like the way you release your melancholy is by actually crying it out. 
Mm. And there's a really cool moment where the actual expression that Leah uses to talk about his crying is he says his eyes have been washed by his tears. And so you can see the way that the medical, the doctor is there helping as well and doing some other things, but the medical uh, way of dealing with melancholy aligns with the kind of spiritual or metaphysical blindness that he's got. These, the physical and the metaphysical are interacting there. And it's after that point, all of a sudden, he's just like a normal old man again. Like he is really nuts. He's seeing stuff. He's raging at the storms, uh, which Levinus Lemnius points out in his mid 1500s uh, treatise that actually demons inhabit the storms. And so if you see storms and it's kind of demons kicking around in there, Obviously, that's just his opinion, but, uh, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's helpful to know that they, you know, again, the early models didn't draw these fine lines that we like to draw or boundaries mm. around things. But Lear actually goes from being pretty much insane to having a moment with a doctor who's looking after his humoral distemper. He has his own, finally, he has his own um, sadness and regret over what he does because the whole time he has no regret. He's just angry. He goes from one daughter to mm. the other and he's just angry at them all. It's kind of choleric is 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 what you would call choler is what you'd call the anger but it's got this deeper melancholy kind of underwriting it and he needs to let that melancholy out in order to be able to be free of it and then he's free and he goes he gets put in jail and he's in there with cordelia and cordelia dies he walks out holding her body and he can see clearly it's like he can see the whole thing he can see the whole play he can see the whole story and he says he, he says, mine eyes are not of the best. He owns up to the fact that he has not seen clearly, mm. but now finally he can. And then, and then the onslaught of consequences and realizations and grief hits him at his final moments and he's dead. Yeah. And he dies. Exactly. He dies seeing that he is actually being the problem the whole time. Cause he hasn't admitted that the whole time. It's mm. always his daughters. It's always everybody else. He realizes he sees the whole play afresh, sees that he is responsible and it breaks his heart and he dies. He's a bit cool of a George Costanza. The and then like, you know, if George Costanza <laughs> sat at that end and he was like, oh, you know what? Maybe I'm the reason I'm unhappy. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then he just has the summer of George and eats a block of cheese. <laughs> oh, what a good show. Not what we're talking about. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, that's good. Yeah. The journey of King Lear is uh, very interesting, especially mm. in relation to sin and the humours and that, that journey of, you know, self-realisation. And self-realization without salvation is death, you know? Mm, mm. Um, awesome. Well, let's move on to the next play that we want to kind of touch into. We can probably talk a little bit more briefly about time. And time is a pretty mm. interesting play, but it's um, it's quite strange. It, it's kind of split into two halves. There's the first half where time is wheeling and dealing and, 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 uh, and in, inviting people into his home and giving them a whole bunch of gifts all the time. In fact, the first act is just people walking on talking about how great time is and how much stuff he's given them. They don't even get names, which is actually a pretty interesting insight that he doesn't see them as humans. He sees them as receptacles for his generosity. So there's kind of two ways of thinking through time in the character. Is he someone who is, really authentically generous and self-giving of himself at the start and then he transforms and becomes a um misanthrop mis a misanthrope a misanthropic person who is um you know rejecting humanity and angry at everybody or has he always got that in him and it just emerges more intently and i would argue that he's always got it in him from the very beginning he is not treating himself and not treating gifts properly 
Um, because ultimately what happens with him is that he goes from being this generous guy, and I talked about it a bit last week, uh, people, people don't help him the way that he expects them to. He wants them to help out because he helped them. And then when that doesn't happen, he loses it. He runs off into the uh, into the woods and um, gets really angry. In fact, encourages people, encourages robbers to go and to steal stuff and to go and, you know, mess up the town. Basically, he doesn't care at all anymore about anybody. And then eventually he buries himself uh, alive. That's 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 what you uh, that's what it looks like. He does. You don't actually know for sure. So the two, um, the kind of two representations of of time, and uh, the one is he was a good guy who got dealt badly and then reacted badly because of how he was dealt, or he was a guy who thought he was treating people well, you know, mm. and then when he expected to get in return what he had given, mm. uh, he he was in fact given what he got. He got what he was what he was giving because mm. what he was giving was an actual genuine care or or consideration it was actually just to treat people as objects for his own power to be generous yeah exactly and so when people treat him in the exact same way they don't give him mm. the gifts that he wants mm. but that's because that's not what they want to do and so mm. therefore then you get to see the reality of the situation that he's in and the character that he is yeah yeah so one of the ways of thinking about acedia is that they're uh the kind of the guy that did this big long-term study of acedia is a guy called uh, siegfried wenzel and he identified these different manifestations through different stages of acedia. It starts off fairly simple and gentle and not very obvious. And eventually it turns into despair and you, and, and when it gets to that point, almost always suicide. And it's interesting that um, at least two of the people we're talking about, Tyman and then in a bit Macbeth actually end by a form of suicide. Mm. Uh, Macbeth, Macbeth certainly knows he's going to his fate. He says, yeah. basically kill me. Uh, so the beginning stage, according to Sigrid Wenzel, is that you've got, uh, it's called an evil beginning that turns into, you know, a problematic kind of middle and then a really bad ending. So the evil beginning is uh, when a man loves little or slackly God. So that's mm. the first stage, when you're just not really involved in loving God. The second little part of the first stage is softness and an exaggerated regard for the comfort of the flesh which is absolutely what's going on with time. And that's what he's all about. And then lastly, idleness. And you can see here how acedia leads to sloth with this idea of idleness, being unoccupied or engaged in vain things. And that's exactly what time is. That's all he's doing. He's idle and he's just occupied in and engaged in vanity. And mm. so these other people are just these platforms for his vanity. That then basically starts to fall apart. Everything falls apart for him. And because he had the bad beginning, that's the reason he finishes at the at the you know worse ending, where eventually he gives up on everybody. Um, and there's actually a character who is there, uh, who is basically like the the foil to him, called Apomantis, or you could pronounce it Ape Mantis. And it's an interesting way to pronounce it because it kind of suggests <laughs> that he's not a man and not a monkey. Mm. You know, he's kind of in this middle ground. He's not quite human, and he is a very uh, misanthropic character and Timon kind of is always chipping him about being such a misanthrope. Oh, why do you hate people so much? But Appomantis basically ends up being proven right. And Timon is like, man, you were spot on. People suck. And then that's when he runs off, uh, and eventually kills himself. Interesting. That's good. I guess the, um, you know, from him, you can see the kind of process of acedia being, and correct me if I'm wrong, but 
once you turn away from the, the light of things, being that at first stage, not giving God the love he deserves or loving him slackly, mm. then you're left to look at the shadows and, and maybe the, the outlines or the silhouettes of things, which is material reality. You know, it's, it's the silhouettes of what's really happening if we're taking this complex worldview of there being more than the material. And so that's when they then in, indulge in these, these hedonistic pleasures or these, these things, but then slowly, right. As these are just, these are shadows, they, they become dull and dim to the mm. point where even interest in them is halted because there's nothing to be interested in anymore you know like it's, right. and then so yep. just to, then you're just staring into the blank void of darkness because there's nothing but the shadows that you live in the issue there is when do you when do you realize so leah realizes very quickly he basically goes from one extreme to the next whereas timon shows us this journey quite slowly he's got a really good servant that works for him all the time called flavius and flavius is always expressing concern for timon's misplaced generosity He's always saying, man, I don't think that this is a good idea. But the next level of manifestations of acedia is unwillingness to suffer reproof. It's an unwillingness to hear about uh, his sins. And he always rejects any spiritual advice he's given. And in fact, what that means is when you reject that spiritual advice, it's not just that you reject it, but it always leads to anger and murmuring at being reproved. That's what the way that Wenzel says it. And so when Flavius, his, his servant is like, I don't think you should do this rather than just rejecting it he actually gets angry um he gets angry at him and he starts to reject it and then we see this moment where the humoral element of what's taking place is made clear so uh at one point he's having what's described as an idol banquet that's the way time talks about his own banquet it's an idol <laughs> banquet and then he asks flavius to get another casket of jewels and then flavius has this aside moment where he's talking to the audience and he says more jewels yet there is no crossing him in his humor. You just can't do anything. His humor is there and you can't do anything about it. And then we get to the point where uh, Flavius starts to realize there are people with bills. There are people with uh, claims on Timon's mo uh, money. And I don't know if we can pay this. So Flavius says, no care, no stop, no such senseless of expense that he will neither know how to maintain it nor cease his flow of riot. He takes no account of how things go for, from him nor resumes no care of what is to continue. So Flavius is just making it really clear. He doesn't care. He doesn't care about anything. And because he doesn't really care, that's the indication that he doesn't have that caritas, that Christian love driving uh, his actions. He doesn't have the care and therefore he starts to cut himself off from everybody around him, cut himself off from the people that really care about him. He's obviously cut himself off from God and therefore he's cut himself off from happiness. And so he's going to go on this process of drifting towards either a ceaseless pursuit of activity in order to kind of ignore the fact that he's empty on the inside, which is definitely how he starts. But then it turns into when the emptiness of that is revealed to him, turns into a depressive inactivity, mm. which is highlighted obviously in his bearing himself alive. Yeah, he's swallowed by the, the void of nothingness, quite literally, as he buries himself in dirt. Yeah, yeah, and he and he loses all chance of hope. Mm. He doesn't believe there's any hope for himself or for humanity anymore. Mm. That's interesting. That's really cool. So moving on from that then, mm. we've looked at Leah's journey, we've looked at now Timon's journey, the, the extremities of, of Leah from one extreme to the other, the mm. Timon's slow, gradual uh, descent into nothingness and death mm. what's different about macbeth 
Macbeth shows us a guy unlike the other two who looks like he got forced into it. Now, if you know the story of Macbeth, you can say, who's the bad guy here, right? Because mm. Lady Macbeth is like, you know, um, are you a man? You know, do, 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 do what a man would do. Get the job done. This mm. is not going to be easy. From the very beginning of the play, we start to see interactions between spiritual and physical. So we see the witches and they say, um, foul is fair and fair is foul, right? Mm -hmm. They are inverting the natural order of the world. And then you might not realize it necessarily when you're watching it, unless you really think about it. One of the first lines, in fact, I think it's the first line uh, that said, and I can't remember if it's Banquo or Macbeth, is so fair and foul a day I have not seen. Now they haven't heard the witches. So the fact that, that Shakespeare has them invoking what the witches have said, it's almost like the witches have cast a spell over the whole thing. And from that point on, everybody is kind of bewitched by the dark magic, by whatever's going on that the witches have started, by fate, you could say. Mm. Um, so there is always this spiritual element of what's going on in Macbeth. But one of the questions we can ask about Macbeth himself is, does he ever repent? Or why doesn't he repent? He seems to have such sorrow. You know, he freaks out. He has these apparitions. We could call them the counterfeit goblins that we talked about before. They come from a humoral distemper. He sees Banquo. Now, maybe he's seeing the real ghost of Banquo. It's a very Catholic way of thinking about things. If there's a real ghost there, the Protestants wouldn't believe that that's a real ghost. But it could also be an apparition, his own guilt playing on him through the humours that are at work in his body. One of the interesting questions to ask is whether or not he has worldly sin or kind of a true sin. Uh, sorry, well, I should say worldly um, regret for his sin or a true regret. Mm -hmm. So does he have uh, sorrow and humility that's required of the Christian or does he have a kind of a passive sorrow and humil humility? And a passive one you could describe as, so in 1625, a guy called John Prester, a Preston who was a reverend, talked about it as being, it's kind of like nothing but a sense of sin. That's all. And God's wrath for it. So you, you kind of feel bad about it. You feel like God's coming for you, but you don't do anything about it. You have the sense of sin without the real apology for the sin. And that I, I suggest is exactly what's going on with Macbeth. Macbeth. Well, Macbeth has, uh, this is the way that William Perkins wrote about it in 1607. He says, um, sorrow according to God is a grief for sin because it is sin. To the stirring up of this affection in the first place, a man must use the ministry of the law, which may beget contrition of heart or the horrors of conscience, which though it is, though it be not a thing wholesome and profitable of its own nature, yet it is a remedy necessary for the subduing of a sinner's stubbornness and for the preparing of his mind to become teachable. So you need the law. The law is not sufficient. The law doesn't help you. But the law, the, the law doesn't get you the whole way, but it prepares you to become teachable. It prepares you to become humble in order to accept that you're wrong. And then um, uh, Perkins continues saying, if any man being afflicted with the cross and with outward calamities have only a worldly sorrow, that is, if he mourn not for sin as sin, but only for the punishment of sin, he is not by and by to be comforted. But this sorrow is to be turned into that other sorrow, which is according to God. And that other sorrow, according to God, is basically despair. And that's what happens to Macbeth. Macbeth is constantly feeling bad, but never properly 
repents. He never really repents. In fact, there's a moment where he says, I would have said amen, but it's stuck in my throat. He finds himself not being able to repent. He's actually, he, he can't repent. He never does repent. And at the end, he certainly ends up saying, I would prefer to die than repent. Mm. Yeah, because that's the the claim put in it on him at the end, isn't it? He gets kind of challenged and he's like, well, this is how it is now. This is where I just come to and I'm following what's happened and might as well, you know. Exactly. Burnham Wood has come to Dunn's name, but who cares? If that's yeah. what's happened, that's what's happened. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. He, When he realises that uh, that uh, Macduff, when he realises that Macduff is the person who is not born of, of woman, when he realises that Macduff, uh, you know, he gets told, I should fear Macduff by the, by the apparitions, but then he's like, why should I fear Macduff if Macduff is born of a woman? But then he finds out that Macduff is from his mother's womb, untimely ripped, so born of a cesarean section, which is apparently that's basically enough of a get-out-of-jail-free get card for Macduff to be the guy that kills him. And then he says, well, let's go. Let's fight to the death because I'm not going to give up. Yeah, that's good. And so I guess how would you um, contrast his, his journey as opposed to the other two journeys that we've had, particularly in regards to would you say it's still a seed year, and if so, how, or if it's not, if it's something else, what is it? Look, it's not entirely different to the other two. It's more so a, um, a recognition of all the ways that it looks as though he's actually sorrowful. He's not. In fact, and, and he does. He goes a level of insane as well. He starts, you know, starting and hearing things that aren't there. And the whole time that it's taking place, he's kind of freaking out. Even at the murder uh, of Duncan, he's kind of freaking out and seeing things that aren't there. Interestingly, um, there is a traitor who's talked about right at the start of the play. In fact, it's the traitor, the Thane of Cawdor, who Macbeth takes over from. It's pretty interesting. People don't necessarily remember that, but Macbeth takes over from a traitor himself. And Malcolm at the start, uh, one of Duncan's kids, talks about uh, Cawdor's execution. He says, very frankly, he confessed his treasons implored your highness's pardon and set forth a deep repentance nothing in his life became him like the leaving it he died as one that had been studied in his death to throw away the dearest thing he owed as twere a careless trifle so you have this idea that he confessed and that he asked for pardon and that he repented and then the best thing he ever did basically was the way that he died you can mm. contrast that, this thing that happens before the play even starts, that we only hear about at the start of the play, with the way that the play ends with Macbeth himself, who, who is a traitor himself. Macbeth, he also clearly sets his life as a careless trifle. You know that because he refuses to yield to Macduff, which is basically suicide because he's seen all of these other things take place. He's like, this is basically suicide. But he's got a carelessness which is completely opposite to Cawdor. Cordor doesn't care for his life because he realizes his life isn't um, isn't valuable in the grand scheme of things because he's repented and he knows that there is more important things going on than the preservation of his own life. Basically, he gives up his life almost like a martyr, you could say. Even though he was a traitor, he repented of it all. Macbeth, completely different, right? He has that famous line in, in the hours leading up to his death when he's going mad in his castle, basically abandoned by everybody and getting attacked from the outside. He says, life's but a walking shadow, a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. So the difference between Cawdor and Macbeth 
is Cordor gave up his life because he was prepared to die having reckoned with his grievous sin. But Macbeth has a completely different kind of despair. It's actually the kind of despair that is sometimes referred to when people historically talked about the unforgivable sin in the Bible. It's this. It's saying, I cannot be saved. I am beyond salvation. So this is a deep, deep despair. Despair not just for what I've done. In fact, it's not really despair for what I've done. It's despair basically for who I am and to say that I, I can't come back from this. And how do you know that's what the way he's thinking is because life doesn't mean anything. He's embraced meaninglessness in a way that is not dissimilar to, uh, to, to Timon, but has come about in a completely different way. Yeah, that's definitely true. So it's the same, it's very much the same, you know, losing of hope as Timon is experiencing, but just with a different kind of context to it and the way it comes about is different. And so I guess there's, there's a contrast here between the two characters of Timon and Macbeth and the way they end their, their journey in the play and their lives and that of King Lear, you know, where he, I mean, they all end up dead, but you would say King Lear maybe is more of the, um, the corridor kind of in his, in his end, although even his repentance is probably seems more sorrowful than Cordor's. Mm, yeah. I would say what you get is you go in Lear, you have the, the combination of the demonic, the sin, the humors, uh, in time and you've really got the humors and the sin, but there's not much demonic stuff going on. Mm-hmm. And in Macbeth, you've really got the demonic and the sin, and there are some humoral things, but it's not really as central. So what Macbeth has got that Timon doesn't have is this question of the kind of the demonic overlay to the whole thing. And so, again, these three plays together represent this confused conflux of different ways of understanding our free will. Like, are we really free agents in the world? And Macbeth is probably one of the best plays to ask that question. Who's ultimately responsible? Does he really have any free will? It seems like a lot of the time he's trying to run away from his fate, but he ends up going towards it. He is active in it, and yet he's also passive in it. And what part does Lady Macbeth and Lady Macbeth's uh, questing out to dark spirits, the murdering ministers that she asked to, you know, fill her from the toe to the uh, head with direst cruelty, thicken her blood and stop up all passage to remorse, which is one of the things that thick blood does. And we know that the demons are able to actually do that. So there's this demonic overlay to Macbeth as well. Brilliant. Well, that I think that's probably going to, leave us where we are with the journey of these three plays. I mean, that each of them is great and it's, you know, we could have spent 30 minutes on any of them. We could spend an hour. We could have spent hundred hours on any of these plays. Um, Absolutely. But I hope that this has been enough for people to kind of dip their toe in, you know, one way of understanding a few different plays and seeing how there's overlay and in cultural understanding as well as, um, you know, historical and, and all these other ways that you can get at, at a Shakespeare play. Um, but no, thanks for that. And uh, well, I guess bef- as we finish this up and it's something I didn't do last week, so I apologize, but if people are wanting to hear your voice more or more from you, where should they be headed? Oh, mate, as lo- I'm not sure anyone wants to hear my voice more, but maybe they might be interested in hearing more from me. I do have uh, my own podcast, which is called Chiron. Uh, and really it's a podcast, which is just going through um, time. So kind of look, jumping forward and back throughout history to try to make sense of stuff that's going on today. At the moment, I'm in the middle of a series which is called Thou Shalt Be God, 
which is about uh, humanity's desire to be God and the different manifestations of that happens throughout time. So we, from Genesis, we look a lot at Satan. And uh, this week, we're about to do an episode about nominalism as well. So uh, once that series is over, we'll keep talking about other other ideas, other topics, postmodernism. And uh, really, it's about recognizing that we should not neglect history if we do want to understand the present, because uh, it's, it shows us how we got to where we are. And it actually reveals to us things that we believe that we don't even know that we believe because we're brought up in a culture that's accepted a whole bunch of particular truths that have emerged throughout history. So yeah, called Chiron uh, comes out uh, comes out every week, and uh, it'd be nice if uh, people had a listen. Mm, yeah, no, I'd, I'd uh, definitely recommend it in terms of you know, it's as someone who's obviously learned under you both at school and university um there's definitely a lot of you know it's the same themes but it's always good to hear these things again and uh readdress them they're valuable truths to be aware of so thanks for coming on there diff this won't be the, the end of our um of our discussions i think we'll probably squeeze in another two episodes probably i'm thinking what we'll do next one i think we'll look at probably this is what i'm thinking is we'll do greatest villains in shakespeare you can bring two Awesome. I'll bring two and we'll just battle it out and see who ends up with the best villain. Uh, yeah. I shot Gunny Iago, So Yeah, that's okay. I thought it. you would. You love yeah. him. <laughs> no, I hate him, but that's why yes, I, I want to talk about him. <laughs> and then I think after that, we'll have a look at, uh, dude, like a nice episode on golden moments in Shakespeare and just give people a sweeping view of our favorite moments yeah, that, that might, great. you know, help them dip their feet further in. Well, awesome. thanks for jumping on. See you next no worries, week. Mate. See you later. Hey, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, we'd really appreciate if you'd follow us on Spotify or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or just share the world with someone else that might enjoy the conversation as well. Really hoping to just continue going with season two to be able to help people dip their toes into things and find other things that they might love. Uh, as I mentioned at the, the beginning of the episode, the website is now live as well. So if you did want to jump on there and grab some merch, that would be awesome too.